This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the US Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and joining me today is Daniel Sabanez-Bove, a Senior Principal Data Scientist and Associate Director at Roche. Daniel graduated from the University of Zurich with a PhD in statistics, and he's had several roles across research and industry that I'm really excited to hear about today. So first, Daniel, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Do you want to take us back to the early days of your training and tell us how you got interested in data science to pursue the path that you ultimately took? Yes, sure. Very happy to do that. I would even go back as far as high school when I got interested in stochastics and problems, combinatorial problems, like, you know, how much chance do you have to roll this in this kind of combination of dices and so on. And I, re I really liked that and I enjoyed it. And that's why I got interested in studying statistics. And, and I also by accident found out that there's even a topic such as statistics. And there was a very nice graduate program and a graduate program at the University of Munich, so close to where I was growing up, near Munich in Germany. And so I started studying statistics after, after high school and after some civil service. And that's really where, yeah, of course, the whole, as we today say, data science education started and where, yeah, really, I had my first, for example, R courses and uh, computer science courses and where everything started. Yes. What specifically interested you about combinatorial problems? Was it just like the work of solving them or was it something that you were empowered to do because of them or something else entirely? I think I liked them because, I, first of all, they were they were challenging, so I found it kind of nice to be able to to solve them in the end. And then the other thing was, I found that they were more practically applicable maybe than other things in, in mathematics. I mean, many things like in geometry or you know some, some maybe some some functional analytics. It, it's not always so clear maybe when you're in high school like what's really the the purpose of this and what's the application and why is it, why does it matter. But uh, when you talk about, you know, what's your chance to win a lottery or something, you feel like, ah, oh, okay, that's that's really something interesting that you could you could better judge in, in real life about situations, how sure they are or how unsure they are. And maybe maybe another thing to mention there, I was also interested in like looking at the weather forecast and like trying to predict things that maybe happen in the future. And I think that's that's also something that where I was thinking, oh, maybe maybe if I study statistics, maybe maybe later on I can also, you know, become a meteorologist and you know predict the weather or something. So that was another reason why I was interested in this kind of direction. So I'm guessing you didn't play the lottery after that. <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure if I ever played, but maybe just once or twice, but no, no, not really, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I totally haven't either. So did you ever wind up doing anything in meteorology? No, not at all. I mean, unfortunately, yeah, I think it would have been interesting, but I was looking into it a little bit, but then it required so much physics and that seemed a bit, I don't know, too hard for me or I was I was not so much in, into physics. So in, in the end, I specialized more in, in biostatistics, so in the medical application of, of statistics. We had to choose like an applied field um, during our undergraduate already. And I, I chose basically medicine as, as the application. 
so I, I took quite some courses in medicine in medicine stuff yeah and really kind of focused a bit more on biostatistics but really still kept it quite open in terms of uh, all the other courses and so on and again there was also a lot of computer science and you know things like java programming things like databases and so on and and of course all, all the mathematical foundations as well so not surprisingly there's a lot of folks that are computer scientists and they know math, math and statistics and then vice versa, I guess there's sort of a lot of cross-pollination in those fields. When you kind of look back to when you first were sort of introduced to computer science from a statistics background, how did the way that you think about problems, how does it compare between those two fields? I'm not even sure maybe if, if I really know how, let's say, a typical computer scientist would approach <laughs> these problems. And, and I still feel it's also, it's very close. It's sometimes it be difficult to differentiate. I think sometimes there's a lot of different language that is used, different slang, statistics versus computer science, you know, I mean, all this machine learning, for example, let's talk about features and so on, and then statistics talks about covariates and so on. So, so there's a lot about that, but of course, that didn't really matter in those initial courses that I had. That was really very, very basic stuff we, we did there. And a lot about algorithms, you know, for example, I remember sorting algorithms for different kinds of ways to sort things and, and what is the complexity of that. And I, I think some of that exercises or experiences are you know, almost immediately applicable when you write another program to, to maybe solve your statistics exercise. So, so I think there's a lot of applications already back then. I'm not sure if I really, if I really know really what's what's the computer science way to look at things. And probably for that, I'm not. I was never really so deep in in computer science. Yeah, that's really interesting. I asked because when I went to graduate school and I sort of interacted with people from statistics and people from computer science, I found that a lot there was a lot of overlap in what they were doing, even to some extent how they thought, but. There were very mm -hmm. big cultural differences. So just, mm -hmm. just for example, like the languages that they wanted to use and how they communicated that. I don't think I could articulate exactly the differences, but I did notice that there were these cultural differences. And mm -hmm. I think it's kind of interesting to think about because it's probably the case like for, there's so much overlap in many domains, but because the cultures of the different domains are different, like you, you can have different experiences in different ones. So food mm -hmm. for thought. <laughs> mm -hmm. So what interested you in biostatistics and medicine? I think I was always somehow a bit interested in, in medicine, not so much actually in biology itself, um, not so much in those foundations or maybe animals or something. I mean, okay, I like I like animals to look at them and so on, but I was not really as interested in biology. But but medicine, I was somewhat interested because I thought always felt like okay, that's something useful, you know. For example, if I if I get sick, then I maybe have some idea what to do. Or if somebody in my family gets sick, you know, there's always somebody getting sick, and then it's, it's interesting to know a little bit more what's going on in, in the body and and maybe try to to help. And I also realized that yeah, there's a lot of, of course statistics problems in, in medicine, and that's why I thought okay, that's it's a very nice way to combine those two interests without becoming like a medical doctor. So I, I was never really thinking to become a medical doctor. Because I was always thinking, oh, if if already somebody draws some blood from me, I'll almost faint. So I, probably I'm not the best doctor. <laughs> so I thought, okay, that's a that's a safer way if I just sit on my computer or, or talk with 
medical doctors about their problems, that's a, that's a safe way to get into this domain. And it's still somehow maybe helpful in the end for, for people. If someone asks you what your role or title is, would you identify yourself as a data scientist or a biostatistician or something else? I, I put in my LinkedIn profile something like both. I put both biostatistician and data scientist. I don't know. I feel like I feel like if I just say data scientist, it's too broad, it's too general, and it can mean like too many different things. And I feel I have enough experience and enough background in biostatistics that I that I also need to say that. So but on the other hand, if I, if I maybe just say biostatistician, then don't cover those programming aspects and software aspects that I'm, that I'm really interested in and that are also working, that I'm working on more with right now, actually. Yeah. I think I suspected that because if I remember back, I, I don't remember if it was five or 10 years ago, there was this huge trend or like popularity of like the data scientists and there were like coding camps and training programs, but someone who went to one of these programs and called themselves a data scientist really didn't have the same skills as someone that I would call a biostatistician. So mm -hmm. you don't want to just be a data scientist because it kind of is a very superficial, it could be a superficial mm -hmm. role. But on the other hand, if you're a biostatistician and you don't call yourself a data scientist, if someone is just looking for that trend, they won't label you as the person that they want. So now you have this strange situation where you have to kind of put both of them because the role is a little bit murkily <laughs> defined. Yes. No, that, that makes sense. <laughs> so can you walk our listeners through the responsibilities of your role in a research context? Basically, I have a very, very nice job that I really enjoy. And, and what I'm doing is basically engineering tools, which, which are mostly R packages, uh, shiny modules, or let's say templates, how to use these things engineer those tools to help basically statisticians to basically do their job in a, in a better way, either more efficiently or really, let's say, come to completely new insights by being able to analyze maybe different data types, different biomarker data, for example, that, that they haven't even looked into before, or by applying also new statistical methods that were maybe too complicated to use otherwise would take too much time to code them from scratch. But if you have a tool available, like a nice R package that, that does it for you, then then it's feasible and then and then you can also gain new insights, right? So that's kind of, let's say, what we're trying to do. And I'm leading, let's say, a team within data science acceleration, which is like a group within biometrics, within Roche, that's basically trying to do that on a, a, little, a little bit larger scale, right? So we, we have about more or less 10 people, but not all of them, 100% on this, who are basically uh, working on different on different tools. And yeah, it's a lot of fun. I, I learn usually something new every day, and it's really kind of a dream job for me. So this is probably a good time to ask, are you familiar with this role or this term, research software engineering? <laughs> yeah, I'm vaguely familiar with it. I really got interested in it just you know, a few weeks ago. I was basically just thinking, you know, what what kind of conferences would be interesting to maybe submit some proposals, some abstract or some post discussion or so this year. And when I thought about that, and then I was also thinking, okay, how can I maybe connect more with academia and not just within, for example, the pharma industry. And that's where I found this movement or this, this group of people that identify with with this term research software engineering and when i looked a little bit at definitions and topics there then i found well that's actually very close 
or even very very much the same what we are doing in, in, in the industry. And I think it would be great to connect with this community and see maybe what what kind of learnings we can we can gain from from this exchange, right? Oh, that's totally fantastic. So you found that you or others in your group did identify with being research software engineers to some extent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. And and actually our, our team is also called statistical engineering. So it's almost <laughs> it's almost the same as research software engineer. And and we also, for example, currently discussing, you know, what what should we actually call us? And uh, definitely there comes software engineers in some sense of course uh, you could say well is it really research but but it is research because basically we again we are in this let's say product development group or or whole department in roche which which is developing new products which is new medicine so and that's that's research so you're bringing up something that i think is so important and it's also so challenging to do and that is this collaboration between sort of an academic world and then more of an industry world if you've thought about it before or just have ideas what do you think are some of the challenges and what would be an ideal outcome yeah challenges what are the challenges between collaborating between industry and academia i think often the, the first challenge is that maybe the industry side is maybe not really open to to sharing things with academia or with anybody else because maybe they think oh we, you know this is something we developed and we should keep this for us secret and you know we invest a lot of money in this and why would we share this with somebody else that they have to do this themselves right so that would i think be the biggest first challenge um, that, that sometimes occurs but of course, that's fortunately not something that we often see, at least in Roche. That's not, let's say, a position that we have. So we rather have the position, especially within the statistics or biostatistics domain, that it's actually can only be good for us if we, for example, publish new methods or new ideas that we have. Because in the end, anyway, for example, when we submit a package of data and analysis for regulatory approval, for example, then we anyway need to lay open our methods and our our ideas and our findings and and latest at that point it becomes shared so if we can already have this exchange before that time point and then really get those exchange between academia and us or industry that can only help us to improve the methods to get the appropriate let's say review from independent unbiased reviewers for example and and really get also the kind of transparency to the public right about what we are doing and how we are doing it i think that's that's very important for us so you described your job as really your dream job can you tell us a little more about what it's like to work at roche so that's a large question what is it like to work at roche but i would say so maybe starting from maybe what i'm doing or what we are doing every day and then, then slowly maybe going broader right Let's maybe start at the, this biometrics level. So biometrics is basically, you know, we call it nowadays data sciences, so product development data sciences. This larger organization, it's, it's pretty large, it's around 1,000 people in Roche. This organization really tr tries to bring together statistics, but also data management and statistical programming, as it was called before. Now this is also kind of put together with, with biostatistics basically three or at least at least three kind of major domains and there's a couple of others that are also important for supporting this 
right? You need to manage your data. You need to kind of produce some kind of programs to run standard analysis or non-standard analysis. And then you also need to be able to interpret the data, make decisions, uh, plan studies, uh, and all kind of those things, which, which is more like biostatistics. And you need to bring all of this very closely together and it needs to run very nice. Yeah, it needs to work together very nicely. That's basically what is our whole, let's say, department doing, right? And again, within that, we are, as, as I said before, we are just a very small, let's say, part of all of this, but, but we're trying to, to help with new tools or new methods or new data types. And now moving outside, of course, there's a lot of other things happening, a lot of collaboration with, with other disciplines, which is really very exciting in Roche and in the pharma industry, of course, more generally, that you have very close collaborations with, you know, medical doctors, with regulatory experts that know, experts that basically know much more about how does FDA or EMA see potential submissions and, and what do they look for. Yeah, we have specialists like safety scientists who are very much focused on the safety profile of, of medicines. And then, of course, you have completely other things like, you know, somebody needs to produce the medicine. That's even another whole word, right? So let's say in general, I would say what is great in Roche is culture. You know, it's very much about being open and transparent and, and kind with each other and look at, you know, different viewpoints trying to find the best solution and being also very, let's say, modern in, in all this kind of, you know, how, how do we manage projects? How do we manage people and so on? So that's, that's all very nice. And on the other hand, so that's the culture side. And then again, it's also, of course, the, the opportunity and the, and the business, which is around uh, making medicines to, to treat very severe diseases, right? So to treat cancer, to treat multiple sclerosis and, and many other very severe diseases. And then that's, of course, like a very, yeah, very fulfilling challenge, very fulfilling job that we're doing there. How does Roche decide that a disease impacts enough people to work on it? So for example, there's a lot of very rare diseases that really could be looked at, for example, but when you look at like a, a pharmaceutical company or some kind of company that might do that research, it seems like the incentive isn't there because they wouldn't have a big enough market. Yeah, that's a challenging topic. And I'm not sure if I'm the best person to answer this, but what I understand personally, and, and not even maybe specific to Roche, but, but in general, I think for, for the pharma industry, is that there's this trade-off between Research costs a lot of money, right? It's only, you know, a, a very tiny fraction of the molecules that maybe you start with in preclinical research, only a small, very small fraction of that can get to the patient in the end. It costs a lot of money. And on the other hand, of course, you also don't want to put too much burden on the health system by making your medicine cost a lot of money, right? Too much. So that's a very challenging trade-off. And I think, yeah, Roche is also trying, you know, to, to really change the way we are working in the pharma industry. So, so we have very ambitious programs to basically change the way we operate and really trying to produce more medicines at actually less price for the society, right? And, and I think that's in the end the way to go because if you can really change the way of working, make things more effectively and, and cheaper than the end, nevertheless, then you can go into more rare and rare and in, into very rare diseases as well, right? And that's, I would say, that's, a, I think, a strategy that is um, being pursued in general. And otherwise, there's also, let's say, new developments in the industry where 
especially for rare diseases where there's also more openness from the regulators to, to look, for example, at historical controls, so-called. So basically, typically in a clinical trial, you, you're always required to basically do a randomized study. You can have a treatment arm uh, or and the control arm, and uh, you basically, every patient that comes in the trial, you flip a coin and they go either left or right to that arm or to this arm. And, and that, of course, with rare diseases, this becomes, uh, first of all, becomes difficult to find enough <laughs> patients maybe for this kind of trial. And the second thing is, of course, then it also is, is more expensive and takes more time if you need this control arm. So that's, for example, something where also regulators are becoming more open to saying, well, we have enough historical data in our databases for the basically to replace those real control patients, right? So that, that's one approach that can also help. The, and I think there's a lot of movement also happening in the on on the health authority and, and regulatory side to make it easier for pharma companies to, to go into very rare diseases as well. Those are really good points. Does Roche have any open source software projects that you'd like to highlight? Yes, yes, very much so. And and that's really also something, as I mentioned before, we are, we are very interested in and, and trying to push very much. And that's a strategy from us, right? That's really that we try to go open source more or less as soon as we can with as, with as much as we can. And for example, one, maybe I can just want, mention one or two things that we have been working on uh, ourselves um, and that, that are very important for us. So that, so the one thing I want to highlight is the so-called Nest project. So that's a, that, that's something that is not completely open source yet, but, but will become open source this year. And that's an initiative that has been, you know, started a few years ago by a few colleagues of me and, and where I also had the opportunity to work a little bit in this project. And that project is very ambitious in the sense that it wants to really do the, the standard clinical trial analysis completely in R which is really very novel for the pharma industry. Pharma industry has, you know, historically relied very much on proprietary software for this. And we have a lot of success already internally in Roche with this Nest project. And, you know, it, 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 it consists of many different packages, different R packages. For example, one package, which is, which is already open source, is called R tables. So basically just a small R and then tables as one word. And with that package, you can, for example, produce, you know, very typical tabulations that you that you need uh, for clinical trial analysis. Of course, you can also use it for any kind of other tabulation work. So that's one project I want to mention. And the other, the other maybe example, which is which is diff another different example is, for example, something called CRM Pack. So basically, three letters CRM and then Pack. And that's a package that that I started when I actually joined Roche in 2013, or I started in 2014, this package, and it's for a very specific, let's say, situation. So it's for the situation when you basically don't have any human data yet, so you don't have any patient or healthy volunteer data on your new molecule, on your new investigational medicine, but you basically need to find out, you know, what's, what's actually the dose? How much do you actually need to give the patients? how much is safe to give to a person from this new medicine, right? So, and those uh, clinical trials are called dose escalation studies. So you basically escalate the dose starting from a very low dose in the first group of patients, and then you go higher and higher. And of course, you accumulate data as you're doing this. For this kind of trial design, 
basically the CRM pack helps to perform them in a, in a modern way and in a actually statistically very sound way. I want to mention the CRM pack because that's that's also some nice example. It started, you know, eight years ago and it's still actually very much developing today. So we have a collaboration on this package together with, you know, two or three other companies now and also academic institution where we basically together developed the package further. And because people actually saw this package after it was published a couple of years ago and started to develop their own extensions to the package in their respective companies. Yeah, late last year, basically, I was contacted by somebody there and they said, you know, why, why don't we just work together and collaborate on this package um, together instead of everybody doing their own extensions. And, and that's really working very nicely now. So we have a kind of working group across companies and across academia even. We're making pull requests on, on GitHub and so on and really extending the package further. And that also shows to me like the benefit of this open source strategy, right? So initially maybe you think like it's it's something you give away, but the reciprocity of this, you can also get something back. And that's really like was a great experience. Ah, the power of open source compels you. <laughs> Have you thought of have you thought about submitting any of these packages to our OpenSci? Not yet, but I think yeah, we should we should definitely consider this. That package we also have published already in the Journal of Statistical Software, for example, and it's on Cron and so on. So but but yes, I think it might help to also put it in other places where people can find it. Awesome. Yeah, that's a good place to find more people that could power this open source thing. So to kind of switch topics a little bit, I couldn't help but notice that you're the author of a statistics book. Can you tell us how that happened? Did you do any teaching? What led you to write a book? That's also a very nice story because it also is like a very long lasting story. Very early start of this. So basically it started when I, when I was studying statistics. It was an undergraduate program. And we had this course with Leo Held, professor back then in Munich. He basically, the professor basically just, just wrote everything on this overhead projector. I'm, I'm not sure even if, if, if these things still exist, but you have like a, you have like some transparent screen and you can write on it. It's projected on the wall. Of course, sometimes he also wrote maybe directly on a blackboard. And then everybody had to write it in their, in the notes them, them, themselves, right? And we found like, okay, but that's a bit like, you know, sometimes difficult to read. Maybe I missed a lesson or something. It would be cool kind of to write this down in a bit more in a nicer way. And me and a couple of other students basically started to type this in, in LaTeX and basically compile this in, into PDFs. And I think, I think at some point then our professor got aware of this. And then he was saying, yeah, you know, maybe we can work together because he's actually interested in writing a book on this. So that's also easier for him to teach this, this kind of topics. And basically that's how it started. Basically we started together writing this latex file PDFs for his lectures. And this kind of then evolved over time into a first German edition of the book. It was then translated into English a couple of years later. Also then at that time, I also started doing my PhD with him. So was kind of it's kind of a longer lasting relationship really that started there and that led to this book i think now we have a second edition of the book out so it's a nice experience and 
it's also an example for me that you know sometimes doing this extra work on top that seems maybe a little bit like well, why do we do this but at, as long as we have fun doing it and there can also you know different things can, can come out of that and of course i never imagined in the beginning when we started you know writing those lecture notes in, on in latech files and so on i never imagined that this would become a book I think that's totally awesome. And we will definitely include a link for our listeners in the show notes. So we're coming up on time. I have just a few more questions. So I am terribly uncultured and I know nothing about the world. So I really want to ask you, what are your favorite things about living in Switzerland? <laughs> I don't believe you that you are uncultured, but okay. I, I will anyway answer the question. <laughs> And what are my favorite things in Switzerland? The first thing that comes to my mind is really the politics. And maybe that's a bit boring, but it's really amazing what kind of votes you can do here in Switzerland when you have a Swiss passport. And I was very grateful and lucky that I got my Swiss passport last year. You can really almost like every few months, there's a vote on something. And it's really very cool to see that, that the whole public is engaged in this kind of votings. And it, it really keeps, I think, the, the politics very close to the people. And, and I think that that's something, especially in these times, that I honor very much about Switzerland. Otherwise, of course, there, there's many other... The usual things that are nice in Switzerland, you know, the nature is very nice. You have a lot of different things you can do. For example, next week, go on vacation. First time, bring our son to ski. Let's see if he will like it. He's just over four years old, so let's see how it will go. <laughs> and those kinds of things are cool. Last but not least, what I also really, really enjoy is the, the multicultural, let's say, mixture that, that you have in, in the bigger cities, at least, right? So I'm living in, in Basel. I think more than one third of, of Basel is basically foreigners. Of course, many of them may be from neighboring European countries, but but there's also like a larger mix of people from, from far away. And, and this mix keeps it very, you know, very interesting and paired together with this maybe more conservative Swiss culture. I think that, that that's an ideal mix for me. Skiing and culture, that sounds lovely. Someday when I'm older and the pandemic's over, I'm, I'm a little bit of an anxious traveler, but there's these places in the world I'd love to see, and I think I'd really like to see Switzerland. So final question. You kind of gave us a little bit of a hint about this when you mentioned skiing, but what do you like to do in your free time when you aren't working? Yeah, what am I doing? <laughs> I feel like I don't have that much free time anymore since I have kids. But nevertheless, I mean, I really like to spend time with my family, with my wife and my son and very, very simple things like going to the park or meeting friends. And there is also something very new that I started just recently with my wife together. We started taking some tennis lessons. So I'm not sure if we are inspired by Roger Federer being from Basel, but <laughs> It, it's more actually our neighbors. They are very much into tennis and that's how we came to this. And this is now my new kind of hobby. So once per week we have this tennis lesson and, and we really look forward to the time when we can play with each other instead of just picking up the balls. <laughs> but uh, we're making some, some slow progress and that's something else, yeah. Oh, that sounds really fun. I absolutely love that. <laughs> Daniel, it has been a pleasure chatting with you. Research software engineering most definitely extends to industry. And I think it's really important that we hear stories like yours to share this part of our community. I'm also really glad to hear that you're gonna be looking at different RC conferences or kind of ways to reach out and work with other research software engineers. And I'm totally rooting for y'all at Roche to continue solving some of these pretty big problems in, in health and disease. So thank you for being on RC Stories today. Thank you, Vanessa, it was a pleasure.